The Confessions of St. Augustine, translated by Albert C. Outler. Book 10, chapters 11 through 22. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11. Thus we find that learning those things whose images we do not take in by our senses, but which we intuit within ourselves without images and as they actually are, is nothing else except the gathering together of those same things which the memory already contains, but in an indiscriminate and confused manner, and putting them together by careful observation as they are at hand in memory, so that whereas they formerly lay hidden scattered or neglected, they now come easily to present themselves to the mind which is now familiar with them. And how many things of this sort my memory has stored up, which have already been discovered and, as I said, laid up for ready reference. These are the things we may be said to have learned and to know. Yet, if I cease to recall them, even for short intervals of time, they are again so submerged and slide back, as it were, into the further reaches of the memory, that they must be drawn out again as if new from the same place. For there is nowhere else for them to have gone, and must be collected, cogenda, so that they can become known. In other words, they must be gathered up, collegenda, from their dispersion. This is where we get the word cogitate, cogitary. For cogo, collect, and cogito, to go on collecting, have the same relation to each other as ago, do, and agito, do frequently, and facio, make, and fastito, to make frequently. But the mind has properly laid claim to this word cogitate, so that not everything that is gathered together anywhere, but only what is collected and gathered together in the mind, is properly said to be cogitated. Chapter 12. The memory also contains the principles and the unnumbered laws of numbers and dimensions. None of these has been impressed on the memory by a physical sense, because they have neither color nor sound, nor taste, nor sense of touch. I have heard the sound of the words by which these things are signified when they are discussed, but the sounds are one thing, the things another. For the sounds are one thing in Greek, another in Latin, but the things themselves are neither Greek nor Latin nor any other language. I have seen the lines of the craftsmen, the finest of which are like a spider's web, but mathematical lines are different. They are not the images of such things as the eye of my body has showed me. The man who knows them does so without any cogitation of physical objects whatever, but intuits them within himself. I have perceived with all the senses of my body the numbers we use in counting, but the numbers by which we count are far different from these. They are not the images of these, they simply are. Let the man who does not see these things mock me for saying them, and I will pity him while he laughs at me. Chapter 13 
All these things I hold in my memory, and I remember how I learned them. I also remember many things that I have heard quite falsely urged against them, which, even if they are false, yet it is not false that I have remembered them. And I also remember that I have distinguished between the truths and the false objections, and now I see that it is one thing to distinguish these things, and another to remember that I did distinguish them when I have cogitated on them. I remember, then, both that I have often understood these things, and also that I am now storing away in my memory what I distinguish and comprehend of them, so that later on I may remember just as I understand them now. Therefore I remember that I remembered, so that if afterward I call to mind that I once was able to remember these things, it will be through the power of memory that I recall it. Chapter 14 This same memory also contains the feelings of my mind, not in the manner in which the mind itself experienced them, but very differently according to a power peculiar to memory. For without being joyous now, I can remember that I once was joyous, and without being sad, I can recall my past sadness. I can remember past fears without fear, and former desires without desire. Again, the contrary happens. Sometimes when I am joyous, I remember my past sadness, and when sad, remember past joy. This is not to be marveled at as far as the body is concerned, for the mind is one thing and the body another. If, therefore, when I am happy, I recall some past bodily pain, it is not so strange, but even as this memory is experienced, it is identical with the mind. As when we tell someone to remember something we say, see that you bear this in mind, and when we forget a thing we say, it did not enter my mind, or it slipped my mind. Thus we call memory itself mind. Since this is so, how does it happen that when I am joyful, I can still remember past sorrow? Thus the mind has joy, and the memory has sorrow. And the mind is joyful from the joy that is in it, yet the memory is not sad from the sadness that is in it. Is it possible that the memory does not belong to the mind? Who will say so? The memory doubtless is, so to say, the belly of the mind, and joy and sadness are like sweet and bitter food, which when they are committed to the memory are, so to say, passed into the belly where they can be stored but no longer tasted. It is ridiculous to consider this an analogy, yet they are not utterly unlike. But look, it is from my memory that I produce it when I say that there are four basic emotions of the mind, desire, joy, fear, sadness. Whatever kind of analysis I may be able to make of these, by dividing each into its particular species, and by defining it, I still find what to say in my memory, and it is from my memory that I draw it out. Yet I am not moved by any of these emotions when I call them to mind by remembering them. Moreover, before I recalled them and thought about them, they were there in the memory, and this is how they could be brought forth in remembrance. Perhaps, therefore, just as food is brought up out of the belly by rumination, so also these things are drawn up out of the memory by recall. 
But why, then, does not the man who is thinking about the emotions, and is thus recalling them, feel in the mouth of his reflection the sweetness of joy or the bitterness of sadness? Is the comparison unlike in this because it is not complete at every point? For who would willingly speak on these subjects? If as often as we use the terms of sadness or fear, we should thereby be compelled to be sad or fearful. And yet we could never speak of them if we did not find them in our memories, not merely as the sounds of the names, as their images are impressed on it by the physical senses, but also the notions of the things themselves, which we did not receive by any gate of the flesh, but which the mind itself recognizes by the experience of its own passions, and is entrusted to the memory, or else which the memory itself has retained without their being entrusted to it. Chapter 15 Now whether all this is by means of images or not, who can rightly affirm? For I name a stone, I name the sun, and those things themselves are not present to my senses, but their images are present in my memory. I name the pain of the body, yet it is not present when there is no pain, yet if there is not some such image of it in my memory, I could not even speak of it, nor should I be able to distinguish it from pleasure. I name bodily health when I am sound in body, and the thing itself is indeed present in me. At the same time, unless there were some image of it in my memory, I could not possibly call to mind what the sound of this name signified. Nor would sick people know what was meant when health was named, unless the same image were preserved by the power of the memory, even though the thing itself is absent from the body. I can name the numbers we use in counting, and it is not their images, but themselves, that are in my memory. I name the image of the sun, and this too is in my memory, for I do not recall the image of that image, but that image itself, for the image itself is present when I remember it. I name memory, and I know what I name. But where do I know it, except in the memory itself? Is it also present to itself by its image, and not by itself? Chapter 16 When I name forgetfulness and understand what I mean by the name, how could I understand it if I did not remember it? And if I refer not to the sound of the name, but to the thing the term signifies, how could I know what the sound signified if I had forgotten what the name means? When, therefore, I remember memory, then memory is present to itself by itself. But when I remember forgetfulness, then both memory and forgetfulness are present together. The memory by which I remember the forgetfulness which I remember. But what is the forgetfulness except the privation of memory? How then is that present to my memory, which when it controls my mind I cannot remember? But if what we remember we store up in our memory, and if, unless we remembered forgetfulness, we could never know the things signified by the term when we heard it, then forgetfulness is contained in the memory. It is present so that we do not forget it, but since it is present, we do forget. From this it is to be inferred that when we remember forgetfulness, it is not present to the memory through itself, but through its image. Because if forgetfulness were present through itself, 
it would not lead us to remember, but only to forget. Now who will some day work this out? Who can understand how it is? Truly, O Lord, I toil with this and labor in myself. I have become a troublesome field that requires hard labor and heavy sweat. For we are not now searching out the tracks of heaven, or measuring the distances of the stars, or inquiring about the weight of the earth. It is I myself, I the mind, who remember. This is not much to marvel at, if what I myself am is not far from me. And what is nearer to me than myself? For see, I am not able to comprehend the force of my own memory, though I could not even call my own name without it. But what shall I say when it is clear to me that I remember forgetfulness? Should I affirm that what I remember is not in my memory? Or should I say that forgetfulness is in my memory to the end that I should not forget? Both of these views are most absurd. But what third view is there? How can I say that the image of forgetfulness is retained by my memory and not forgetfulness itself when I remember it? How can I say this since for the image of anything to be imprinted on the memory, the thing itself must necessarily have been present first by which the image could have been imprinted? Thus I remember Carthage. Thus also I remember all the other places where I have been. And I remember the faces of men whom I have seen and things reported by the other senses. I remember the health or sickness of the body. And when these objects were present, my memory received images from them so that they remained present in order for me to see them and reflect upon them in my mind, if I choose to remember them in their absence. If therefore forgetfulness is retained in the memory through its image and not through itself, then this means that it itself was once present, so that its image might have been imprinted. But when it was present, how did it write its image on the memory, since forgetfulness by its presence blots out even what it finds already written there? And yet in some way or other, even though it is incomprehensible and inexplicable, I am still quite certain that I also remember forgetfulness, by which we remember that something is blotted out. Chapter 17 Great is the power of memory. It is a true marvel, O my God, a profound and infinite multiplicity. And this is the mind, and this I myself am. What then am I, O my God? Of what nature am I? A life various and manifold and exceedingly vast. Behold, in the numberless halls and caves, in the innumerable fields and dens and caverns of my memory, full without measure of numberless kinds of things, present there either through images as all bodies are, or present in the things themselves, as are our thoughts, or by some notion or observation, as our emotions are, which the memory retains even though the mind feels them no longer as long as whatever is in the memory is also in the mind. Through all these I run and fly to and fro. I penetrate into them on this side, and that as far as I can, and yet there is nowhere any end. So great is the power of memory, 
so great the power of life in man whose life is mortal. What then shall I do, O thou my true life, my God? I will pass even beyond this power of mine that is called memory. I will pass beyond it that I may come to thee, O lovely light. And what art thou saying to me? See, I soar by my mind toward thee, who remainest above me. I will also pass beyond this power of mine that is called memory, desiring to reach thee where thou canst be reached, and wishing to cleave to thee where it is possible to cleave to thee. For even beasts and birds possess memory, or else they could never find their lairs and nests again, nor display many other things they know and do by habit. Indeed, they could not even form their habits except by their memories. I will therefore pass even beyond memory, that I may reach him who has differentiated me from the four-footed beasts and the fowls of the air by making me a wiser creature. Thus I will pass beyond memory. But where shall I find thee who art the true good and the steadfast sweetness? But where shall I find thee? If I find thee without memory, then I shall have no memory of thee. And how could I find thee at all if I do not remember thee? Chapter 18 For the woman who lost her small coin and searched for it with a light would never have found it unless she had remembered it. For when it was found, how could she have known whether it was the same coin if she had not remembered it? I remember having lost and found many things, and I have learned this from that experience that when I was searching for any of them and asked, Is this it? Is that it? I answered no, until finally what I was seeking was shown to me. But if I had not remembered it, whatever it was, even though it was shown to me, I still would not have found it because I could not have recognized it. And this is the way it always is when we search for and find anything that is lost. Still, if anything is accidentally lost from sight, not from memory as a visible body might be, its image is retained within, and the thing is searched for until it is restored to sight. And when the thing is found, it is recognized by the image of it which is within. And we do not say that we have found what we have lost unless we can recognize it, and we cannot recognize it unless we remember it. But all the while the thing lost to the sight was retained in the memory. Chapter 19 But what happens when the memory itself loses something, as when we forget anything and try to recall it? Where finally do we search but in the memory itself? And there, if by chance one thing is offered for another, we refuse it until we meet with what we are looking for. And when we do, we recognize that this is it. But we could not do this unless we recognized it, nor could we have recognized it unless we remembered it. Yet we had indeed forgotten it. Perhaps the whole of it had not slipped out of our memory, but a part was retained by which the other lost part was sought for, because the memory realized that it was not operating as smoothly as usual and was being held up by the crippling of its habitual working. Hence, it demanded the restoration of what was lacking. For example, if we see or think of some man we know, and having forgotten his name, try to recall it. If some other thing presents itself, 
we cannot tie it into the effort to remember because it was not habitually thought of in association with him. It is consequently rejected until something comes into the mind on which our knowledge can rightly rest as the familiar and sought-for object. And where does this name come back from, save from the memory itself? For even when we recognize it by another's reminding us of it, still it is from the memory that this comes. For we do not believe it as something new, but when we recall it, we admit that what was said was correct. But if the name had been entirely blotted out of the mind, we should not be able to recollect it even when reminded of it. For we have not entirely forgotten anything if we can remember that we have forgotten it. For a lost notion, one that we have entirely forgotten, we cannot even search for. Chapter 20 How then do I seek thee, O Lord? For when I seek thee, my God, I seek a happy life. I will seek thee that my soul may live. For my body lives by my soul, and my soul lives by thee. How then do I seek a happy life, since happiness is not mine till I can rightly say, It is enough, this is it. How do I seek it? It is by remembering as though I had forgotten it, and still knew that I had forgotten it. Do I seek it in longing to learn of it as though it were something unknown, which either I had never known or had so completely forgotten as not even to remember that I had forgotten it? Is not the happy life the thing that all desire? And is there anyone who does not desire it at all? But where would they have gotten the knowledge of it, that they should so desire it? Where have they seen it, that they should so love it? It is somehow true that we have it, but how, I do not know. There is indeed a sense in which when anyone has his desire, he is happy. And then there are some who are happy in hope. These are happy in an inferior degree to those who are actually happy. Yet they are better off than those who are happy, neither in actuality nor in hope. But even these, if they had not known happiness in some degree, would not then desire to be happy. And yet it is most certain that they do so desire. How they come to know happiness I cannot tell. But they have it by some kind of knowledge unknown to me, for I am very much in doubt as to whether it is in the memory. For if it is in there, then we have been happy once on a time, either each of us individually or all of us, in that man who first sinned and in whom also we all died, and from whom we are all born in misery. How this is I do not now ask, but I do ask whether the happy life is in the memory. For if we did not know it, we should not love it. We hear the name of it, and we all acknowledge that we desire the thing, for we are not delighted with the name only. For when a Greek hears it spoken in Latin, he does not feel delighted, for he does not know what has been spoken. But we are all delighted as he would be in turn if he heard it in Greek, because the thing itself is neither Greek nor Latin. This happiness which Greeks and Latins and men of all other tongues long so earnestly to obtain. It is then known to all, and if all could with one voice be asked whether they wished to be happy, there is no doubt they would all answer that they would. And this would not be possible unless the thing itself, which we name happiness, were held in the memory. 
Chapter 21 But is it the same kind of memory as one who, having seen Carthage, remembers it? No, for the happy life is not visible to the eye, since it is not a physical object. Is it the sort of memory we have for numbers? No, for the man who has these in his understanding does not keep striving to attain more. Now we know something about the happy life, and therefore we love it, but still we wish to go on striving for it, that we may be happy. Is the memory of happiness, then, something like the memory of eloquence? No, for although some, when they hear the term eloquence, call the thing to mind, even if they are not themselves eloquent, and further, there are many people who would like to be eloquent, from which it follows that they must know something about it. Nevertheless, these people have noticed through their senses that others are eloquent and have been delighted to observe this and long to be this way themselves. But they would not be delighted if it were not some interior knowledge, and they would not desire to be delighted unless they had been delighted. But as for a happy life, there is no physical perception by which we experience it in others. Do we remember happiness then as we remember joy? It may be so, for I remember my joy even when I am sad, just as I remember a happy life when I am miserable. And I have never, through physical perception, either seen, heard, smelled, tasted, or touched my joy. But I have experienced it in my mind when I rejoiced, and the knowledge of it clung to my memory, so that I can call it to mind, sometimes with disdain and at other times with longing, depending on the different kinds of things I now remember that I rejoiced in. For I have been bathed with a certain joy, even by unclean things which I now detest and execrate as I call them to mind. At other times, I call to mind with longing good and honest things which are not any longer near at hand, and I am therefore saddened when I recall my former joy. Where and when did I ever experience my happy life that I can call it to mind and love it and long for it? It is not I alone or even a few others who wish to be happy, but absolutely everybody. Unless we knew happiness by a knowledge that is certain, we should not wish for it with a will which is so certain. Take this example. If two men were asked whether they wished to serve as soldiers, one of them might reply that he would, and the other that he would not. But if they were asked whether they wished to be happy, both of them would unhesitatingly say that they would. But the first one would wish to serve as a soldier, and the other would not wish to serve, both from no other motive than to be happy. Is it perhaps that one finds his joy in this and another in that? Thus they agree in their wish for happiness, just as they would also agree, if asked, in wishing for joy. Is this joy what they call a happy life? Although one could choose his joy in this way and another in that, all have one goal which they strive to attain, namely to have joy. This joy, then, being something that no one can say he has not experienced, is therefore found in the memory and is recognized whenever the phrase a happy life is heard. Chapter 22 Forbid it, O Lord, put it far from the heart of thy servant who confesses to thee. 
far be it from me to think I am happy because of any and all the joy I have. For there is a joy not granted to the wicked, but only to those who worship thee thankfully, and this joy thou thyself art. The happy life is this, to rejoice to thee, in thee, and for thee. This it is, and there is no other. But those who think there is another follow after other joys, and not the true one. But their will is still not moved, except by some image or shadow of joy. End of Book 10, Chapters 11 through 22 of the Confessions of St. Augustine Read by Susan Stanley in Northwest Georgia www.desertpilgrim.blogspot.com Read on February the 14th, 2009